Thank you, Lord, that you confront us. Thank you, Lord, that you cherish us and care for us. Thank you, Lord, that you, by your spirit, use this word powerfully for breaking down the walls of separation between us and God, between us and one another, between us and this creation. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work among us even this morning. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use this word to transform us. Be at work among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me, we will read Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. We're going to just look at verses 9 through 11, but I'm going to read this whole section because it is all connected together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin to consider um, Mark, as I said last week, we're going to take this next five, six months or so and begin to unpack um, really the first part of the Gospel of Mark. And what I wanted to say to you last week and what I'm continuing to say to you this week is we're entitling this series The Real Jesus for a Reason because what Mark wants to do is to confront us with Jesus. And the reason why, as I said last week, that's important is because in the New Testament times when the Gospels began to be written, it was because many of the eyewitnesses began to die off. And as a result, there needed to be a credible testimony to the real Jesus. And the reason why that's important to us today is obviously that we need a record of the real Jesus because people's proclivity to distort. But... What's the real reason why that goes on, and, and is it possible that that happens among us, even in the church, as we begin to present Jesus to other people? That's why it becomes important for us to consider Mark ourselves and not just say, well, I know who Jesus is. I've got that done. Because what most of us have a tendency to do, whether we realize it or not, is to take Jesus and begin to tame him. We don't want an inconvenient Christ. We want a very convenient Christ. We don't want an uncontrollable God. We want someone that we can control and manage. And what the Gospels do to us is they confront us with a person that we cannot manage, that doesn't fit neatly into our categories. Jesus, the real Jesus won't let self-righteous people get off the hook, but he also won't let libertines run amok. He seems to make both Democrats and Republicans very uncomfortable, and even libertarians aren't always sure he's their guy. People love to hunt and peck Jesus, but when you get the whole person, we are confronted with someone who makes us at times uncomfortable. And you might think on the surface that that's a bad thing, but I want to contend with you that actually if Jesus doesn't confront us, then we will not be different. 
And if we are not different, then we will never be able to say, I love God. We will never be people who really, truly care about our neighbor. What I want to begin to look at this morning is what I think Mark begins to, to give us a view into God. And says, look, you need to understand who I am. So that you really will understand what you were called to be. So that you'll understand your deficit. You understand where you come up short. You understand what you want is really not getting you where you really want to go. Because look, let's be honest, folks. In the world around us today, let's be truthful. Most people in general want to do other people good. Most people don't wake up in the morning thinking, I want to be cruel and mean and harsh to my coworkers. Yet they are. Most mothers don't wake up in the morning and think, I want to be exasperated out of my mind with my children by the end of the day and be so frustrated that when my husband walks in the door, he's just going to get it. Because it's his fault they're acting this way anyway. And I could go on the list down the road. I mean, what I want you to understand is, is that no one gets up and says... I want to hate God and hate others. And certainly no person who is a regular church attender says that. We all get up and say, I want to love God and I want to love other people. And somehow we come up short. How do we deal with that? How do we? I I wish I could use that phone call as an illustration, but it's just nothing coming to me. (laughs) Sorry. Hello? What I want you to begin to see then in this passage is is that Mark incredibly, in short little verses, whether you think the prologue ends at verse 13 or whether you think it extends all the way to verse 15 is really irrelevant to me. The main thing I want you to see is, is that Mark in a very short few verses is basically pulling back the veil and in a great economy of words saying, you must see the reality of who Jesus is, who God is, and who humanity is, because I'm not really going to talk about it overtly anymore. After this first section, Mark immediately drops into Galilee, and we start talking about Jesus and what He does, and how He acts, and how He operates, and what's going on. But you don't really have the veil completely pulled back. In these first verses, Mark is pulling back the veil and he's drawing us to look back to the Old Testament and look forward to everything it was looking forward to. And I want us to begin to look into that then now. The first thing I want us to consider is the nature of Jesus. Look at this passage. You might not immediately pick this up, but let's get some context. In those days, Jesus, who I've already told you, Jesus was like Jesus in Mexico. There were hundreds of of Jesuses, just like there are hundreds of Jesuses. It was not that unusual of a name. It was pretty common. I mean, think about it. A whole people who basically had their hope in Yahweh and Him saving them. Of course, you know, it's kind of typical. People tended to hold on to that name, and so it was rather a normative name. Also, that name, there had been those who had rebelled against the Roman Empire who had had the name of Jesus. And so you see that there's some sense of if we could throw off the yoke, it has some connection with God will come and throw off the yoke of, the, of Rome off us and set us free. 
So the notion here is, as I've already told you, Mark is trying to say something is distinct about this Jesus, but it's interesting, after he's told us in those first eight verses something distinct, he now comes back and he says, in those days, Jesus came from Bumpkinville to be baptized out in nowhere land. That literally is what he just told you by John. This obscure dude who walks around in camel's hair and eats locusts and honey and has a girdle, which is a belt, around his waist. And he's pouring water on people, which we already looked at last week and said that was almost unheard of. You baptized yourself. Other people didn't baptize you. So we see that Jesus, and, and this is why I want you to understand this, because when it says that Jesus comes from Nazareth, remember in another gospel what we're told. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was Bumpkinville. I mean, that's where all the rednecks lived, was up there in Galilee, and Nazareth was as redneck as you could get. It was as country and backwoods as you could get. Now, do you understand the point that in some way Mark is drawing you into? Here comes Jesus, the divine King, Son of God. That's what he told us in those first verses. Here he comes from Nazareth to get baptized by John. Do you start to look into the nature of Jesus? And does that somehow, in looking at Jesus, begin to give you something into the nature of God? That which appears to be small. That which appears to be insignificant. That which appears to be not all that important. This is how... God begins the inauguration of His good news. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee. You have to understand how Judeans looked at people in Galilee. I mean, yes, they were Jews, and yeah, but you know, they still were kind of suspicious. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's kind of like growing up in the South. You know, people had that strange tonal, in other words, they didn't speak the language of heaven in some, some sort. They didn't have that nice, smooth, how y'all doing? That person ain't one of us. And I even know of a particular situation in a particular town in Mississippi where a minister was told, you can come and preach to us, you can marry and bury us, but you will never be one of us. See, there's this sense in which people from Galilee, well, it's okay, you come down here and it's good that you come to the temple and it's right to you, but you know, you're Galilean. You know, you're kind of like New York City. That's kind of the way it was. The idea here is, and what I want you to see is, is that Mark is telling us that the divine king has come and taken on the role of an obscure bumpkin. He's from Nazareth. And he comes to be baptized by John. Now that in and of itself should, should strike us because here's the point. Why does Jesus need to be baptized? Remember, we've already been told what John's baptism was. It was a baptism of repentance and preparation for the coming of the Lord. We've already understood that Mark is very clear to tell us that Jesus is the Lord coming. 
the way being prepared. Why in the world does Jesus come and get baptized in a baptism of repentance? Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus hasn't sinned. Jesus isn't going to sin. Jesus is divine. Jesus is a king. What in the world is he doing out in the middle of the wilderness getting water poured on him? Why is he out there? What I want you to begin to do is to see this. Jesus basically says in what he does, I'm willing to be accounted with the outcast. I'm willing to be counted with the despised. I'm willing to be counted with the insignificant. And I'm even willing to be counted among the sinners. And so you have to get that very clear in your mind right now so that you'll understand all the things that are going to happen in the rest of the Gospel of Mark. This is the nature of Jesus. Jesus comes and says, I came not to be served, but to serve. I've come to be among the common person, the ordinary person. And that doesn't necessarily mean rich, poor, white, black, yellow, or tan. What he's really getting at here is saying, I'm willing to be with people who recognize themselves to be ordinary. And folks, in our society, that's the last thing you want to be, is just ordinary. There's nothing exciting about ordinary. There's nothing exciting about normal. Whatever normal means. Most people want to in some way say there was something exciting, something glamorous, something beautiful about my life. And for many people, they feel the desperation of the fact that that's not been true. Or for a brief moment in high school or in college, or for a brief moment at their job, somehow they hit a zenith and they tend to hold on to that. Or they tend to not have reached that and they're desiring to get it. If I could just reach this, whatever that is, car, home, job, type of person you're married to, type of friends you have, whatever the thing might be, what Jesus says is, I've come to number myself with people who sense that they lack, who are striving for something great and keep finding themselves coming up short. I've come to be among those people. I've come to care for them. And I've not just come to stand on the sidelines. See, this is why I think it's so important before we move on that we see Jesus. Jesus is not just coming to say, I'm going to be a sideline Jesus. He doesn't just become a man and say, okay, I'm going to walk around them. No, he plunges himself right into the midst of them. He undergoes a baptism that was completely unnecessary for him 
because he wants to unite himself to this people. Now, there's more going on, and we, I, I want to save that before we move to the next point. Here is the next point, the nature of God. We begin to see in this passage a real insight into who God is, into how God operates, into how he thinks and processes life, and how he, how he relates. And I want you to, I want to read through this whole section again because it encompasses these three verses. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, he immediately saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. What we have going on here is three distinct persons relating with one another. We have Jesus, we have the Spirit, and we have apparently a Father even though the text doesn't say father, usually a father is the one who says, you're my beloved son. So what we have here is the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're interrelating. Now, I recognize if you go read other gospels, you will get the indication that at least John the baptizer heard all this going on, and it may be that others around them heard it. There were certainly those who said they thought they heard an angel speaking. Others say that they thought. But Mark is trying to tell us something significant here in the way he phrases the text. The way he phrases the text is this. This is what Jesus saw. This is what Jesus heard. And since the other Gospels give us indication that other people heard and saw something and that John the baptizer himself may have seen and heard all of this, Mark's trying to say there's something going on within God that you need to see and understand if you would hear the Gospel, if you would understand the rest of what I'm going to say. And so we need to look into the nature of God. What does this show us? Well, it shows us the turn of the inaction. Why is Jesus coming out to the Jordan? Why is Jesus in Nazareth of Galilee? Why is Jesus here at all? Well, see, we're beginning to see something in the Trinity that we need to see. First, so that we would understand how amazing it is that God would do what He's done. What we see is Jesus being obedient. Jesus submitting Himself. Jesus being self-sacrificing. Now, understand that those are things that we might talk about in human discussions. Well, this is what people are. This person is self-sacrificing. But I want you to understand that in the very context of the Trinity's relationship with one another, those very characteristics are inherent to the nature of who God is and how He operates. Jesus is thinking about the Father and not Himself. He's not thinking about Himself. He's thinking about the Father. He's delighting in the Father. He's glorifying the Father. He's celebrating the Father. What we see here is this idea of beauty and desire in the Trinity. God being overwhelmed with the beauty of the other persons and His desire to do what pleases and honors and glorifies the others. Now, how do I know that? Because then look what we see with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as a response of Jesus coming out of the water, does what? The heavens open and the Spirit descends like a dove down upon Jesus. 
What is that telling us? The Spirit, and I think you cannot do enough to really emphasize that we're descending. The Spirit descends to be with Jesus, to connect with Jesus, to minister to Jesus, to care for Jesus, to celebrate Jesus. Oh, you're willing to go and self-sacrifice and and lay yourself down? Oh, well, let me come and be with you. Let me come and celebrate you, Jesus. And then what do we see the Father's response? Father says, well done. You're my beloved. You're my one and only. There's no one like you. You're my son, which may seem small to you, but understand in this particular era, it's still significant in our culture, but not as much so. To say you are the beloved son is to say you're the heir. You're the one in whom I'm placing all my treasure. You're the one who I esteem the greatest. I give you the title of son. And it's not just that I do that because the law caused me to do it. Let me be very clear. I I esteem you as the son by saying you are the beloved son. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, well satisfied. Now, do you begin to see what's happening in the Trinity? Do you begin to see what's going on? And for those of you that have been with us for a while, you remember back to Genesis at the very creation, what did we talk about was going on there? That really creation was not something that God did because He needed something. It was really something that came out of the joy and the celebration and the glory that He was sharing within Himself that He decided to like to extend it to someone else. What we almost see here, men and women, if you're looking at this rightly, is the two greatest commandments being true within the Godhead. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that? I've really wrestled with this for a long time, and and it really has profoundly affected me over the last couple of weeks to really think about this. Because what I've always been troubled when I've said, look, God is the center And He's right to think about Himself and Himself first. And He's right to call us to think about Him. God, in one sense, is self-centered. And what I've really been challenged by this passage to think about is, that's really not true. God really is never capable of being self-centered because there's a trinity. That's what's distinctive about Christianity from all other religions. There is one God. But He is forever in His oneness thinking about the other. The Trinity is always thinking about the other. The Spirit thinks about the Father. The Father thinks about the Son. The Son thinks about the Father and the Spirit. Do you see what's happening there? They love. They cherish. They value. They lay themselves down for the other one. Because see, don't you understand that outside of a perfect world to say, I esteem you highly is to open yourself up for rejection. Don't you understand what's going on? This vulnerability that happens in the Trinity. I'm willing to lay myself down and you could do me wrong. Now we all understand in the nature of God, He could never do that. But do you understand what we're seeing in the essence of the Trinity? We were created out of a being 
that is forever loving, is forever caring, is forever celebrating the other. And do you understand that we don't operate that way? Our first motivation is not to think about the other. It's not. Our first motivation normally is to think about ourselves or our responsibilities. And usually the reason why we're thinking about our responsibilities is because if they don't get done, then it's just going to be a big fat mess. Or if they don't get done, I'm going to get yelled at. Or if they don't get done, there's going to be some reprisal or some penalty. Do you understand that in the Trinity, there's this celebration and there is no fear because perfect love cast out fear. But they glorify each other. They rejoice in one another and they are willing to serve one another. In fact, we see that going on continuously. Now, With that in mind, I want you then to think about what Mark is leading us to. Mark is basically looking back to creation. How do I know that? Well, because the place that we know this idea of of the Spirit fluttering over the waters, well, where have we heard about that before? Genesis chapter 1. And the Spirit of God was fluttering, hovering over the waters. And in this particular time and in this particular era... Aramaic was the dominant lingua franca, the speech of the people. And they, in the Targum translation, the Aramaic translation of the Bible in Genesis 1, 2 says, and the Spirit of God was fluttering like a bird over the waters, like a dove. It's really the only place you see that type of language used of the Holy Spirit. The notion here is is that Mark is trying to draw his readers back to creation and say, you need to understand how the world was created and the purpose for which it was created. You need to understand, as we begin to look at recreation, you need to understand at creation who it is that made you. And then you begin to get some sense of what you were made for and what you were made to be a part of what you were made to be connected to. Now, the third thing I want us to look at then is the nature of humanity. What does this tell us about human beings? Well, the first thing we can't deny is the fact that the whole section that we've been looking at thus far has told us that human beings are failures. They fail. That's why they're going out to be baptized to begin with, right? They are sinners. They're corrupt. They don't do the right things. They don't care about the right things. They don't live the right way. That's why they go out to John to be baptized. That's why for some of them, they become so indignant. I'm a keeper of the law. See, keep that in mind. If you're not willing to go out there and confess that you need the baptism of John, who are you probably not ready for? We're going to see that go on throughout the rest of Mark. 
So the point here, though, is, is that we see with humanity is this need for repentance, this reality that we are not right. We're not being a part of what we're supposed to be. Another thing that's really striking here, and again, we're being drawn back, with the whole idea of the heavens ripping open, the idea of that, that being open, this dove descending, you can't help but look back to Noah. Because usually when the heavens rent open, what's, what's being done? Well, number one, for it to be rent open means there's a separation, right? There's a separation between earth and heaven. That separation is opened. And what would you expect to happen? Judgment. Wrath. Anger. But what do we see? We see a dove. We see a dove. We see the Spirit coming down as a dove. Which anyone thinking about a dove, it's not just to get the idea of peace. That's not what I'm really driving at. I'm driving to the idea of, don't you understand that when Noah got the olive branch back from the dove, what did he know? That God had brought relief. That God had brought rest that God had recreated the world and the waters had receded, that judgment had come to an end and that a new day had dawned. So do you see what humanity is being told? They're being told there's a separation and make no beans about it. There's a separation. But that separation is coming to an end, which means that humanity has a reason for hope. Now, The last thing I want us to understand before we come to our conclusion then is this. If we see Jesus, and what does Jesus do? Jesus delights to do the Father's will. He sees the glory and the beauty of God, and He delights to glorify Him. He delights to enjoy Him. We have to say this about Jesus as a man. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's a good moral doer. And if all we're called to do is just to follow His teaching and to act like Him, we're in big trouble. Because part of of what I've already told you is our tendency is to distort what He says. And therefore, even if the hardest we try, we could never do what he, He does. We couldn't do it anyway, but it's double stacked against us. We don't always hear it. We distort it. And we don't do it. And what we're really being called to in this whole passage and what Mark wants you to see is there is a way that God is. And the way He is in this loving, caring, glorifying, delighting relationship was the very essence out of which humanity was created. Humanity was created for what? To glorify God. Humanity was created for what? To enjoy Him forever. And that is not what we do. And that is not how we operate. That is not our first motivation. And so the dilemma we find ourselves in is that what do we do? What do we do? Try harder? Screw up our courage? Turn our life around? Turn over a new leaf? 
Now see, what the passage, what Mark is drawing you to do is say, look to Jesus. Don't look to what you can do. Look to what He has done. Don't look to how you can figure out God. Look to how God has made you and what He's made you to be and how He has drawn you to Himself in the person of Jesus to reconnect you. See, how do I get back to doing what I was made to do? Well, the only way I can get there, what Mark is going to tell us and he's going to continue to tell us is through Christ. That's the only way. That's the only means. Why? Because He's the only one who really gets it. He's the only one who's really able to do it. And men and women, you need to see that that confronts you. Because see, all of us want to say, yes, but... None of us really just want to accept the fact that Jesus does it all. None of us really wants to accept the fact that we really can add nothing to the equation. And see, Mark is drawing us to say that all you can do is prepare. You can't do anything else. Prepare. Prepare. And we looked at last week that even in our preparation, we come up short. That's why Jesus came and made the way for us. Even in our preparation, we don't prepare as we ought. Even in our preparation, we're not drawn to do it with a whole heart. What I really want you to see this morning, and what I'm hoping will carry us through, is this. That for people who fail, for people who are screwed up, for people who say, I want to love God with all my heart, and I honestly know that I don't. For people who say, I really want to care about the person across the street. I really want to tell the person at work about Christ. I really want to do that, and I don't. Jesus has come for that person to give them courage, to give them strength, to make a way. Because see, here's the, here's the final note, men and women. If you're not a person who gets caught up in the song of the Trinity, you will never do God's will. You do understand that, don't you? As long as you try to stand outside the song of the Trinity, you will never obey Him. Because see, the only way to obey God is to be caught up in the way God is. And what is God doing? He's celebrating the other. He's celebrating the other. The way we come to God and to celebrate Him is to see all that He's done for us in Christ. See, that's where it begins. When you come to a place and say, I've got nowhere to go and nothing else but Jesus, then you have begun that journey. Because see, what you've begun to do is to celebrate what? Jesus. And you've entered into the song. The greatness of Jesus brings you into the song. The song of creation. The song of recreation. Jesus is great. 
Jesus says, if you see me, you see who? The Father. The Father is great. He sent the Son. Well, if you see the Father, then you'll know that the Spirit has come to be among you. Oh, the Spirit is great. And you begin the song of salvation, which really, in one sense, is the song of creation, which in one sense is the song of eternity because that's what God's been singing forever. And we become a part of that only through Jesus. If you begin to see Him and to delight in Him and to rejoice in Him, then what is it to do what delights Him? It becomes a very small thing. It becomes a very easy thing. He will tell us in the Gospels, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not because it's not hard sayings, not because it's not difficult stuff, but because once you begin to see Him for who He is and you begin to enter the song, following Him and hearing Him becomes a delight rather than a burden. And you begin to see your life transformed and renewed. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.